competitors are like um, su the super morbidly obese opinion columnists and postmenopausal hags writing about their new refrigerator. You want to slate and start the podcast for real? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. One, two, three. Sorry, I just need to make sure that nothing before that slate is ever listened to, <laughs> that those tapes get destroyed. Um, I have to put up my new hair. I was getting my last haircut and the I asked the woman, this was really early in the haircut, like where she would live if she could live anywhere in the world. And she said Japan. And I kind of wanted to like stop the haircut at that point because I knew that it was going to be an anime haircut, but I didn't know how to do it, you know? Um, so now I have an anime haircut. You don't have an anime haircut. I think I do. I have an anime hair color. You do have an anime hair color, but I have an it anime sucks. haircut and anime physique. So jealous of you, Galpa. You look great. Okay, Thanks. so um, it's March 28th. He sent me that guy who said he had comments on the podcast uh, sent me his following message was in Latin. So today we're going to talk about literature. <laughs> Do you want to take again. it away? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Is that hard enough? How long have we been recording? This is upsetting. I don't know. Okay. So my phone is on another table. I'm not going to read any more messages from men. We're going to get this started. And we're going to record for real now. Uh, we okay. have microphones in response to feedback from abusers <laughs> in our immediate circle who said that it was tinny and uncomfortable to listen to and that he wanted more ASMR. Uh, so this is an ASMR podcast now. Oh my God. My <laughs> did ex, he really say that? Yes, he did. You know, my ex would listen to ASMR videos like all the time. And I found that more disturbing than his frankly borderline illegal pornography consumption. So I don't really know how to do ASMR, but I don't think we're going to do it. Okay. So we're going to talk about literature today. So uh, I'm the personality girl because people also said that our voices were indistinguishable. Okay. I'm default friend. Okay. So she's the smart one and I'm the one that talks more quickly. So the first story that we're going to talk, is, is, talk about is Cat Person, which is the only one that anyone listening to this will probably have read. So that's a story by Kristen Rupenian that came out in the New Yorker in 2017 that launched a million personal essays. Uh, and we're also going to talk about the story, The Bad Boy, uh, from the short story collection by the same author that was later renamed Cat Person because no one bought it. And we're gonna talk about the story, The Feminist by Tony Tulathamodi, whose name we don't know how to pronounce and couldn't find verification of, uh, which came out in N plus one in fall 2019. Okay, so what all these stories have in common is that they're about sex and they're about how messed up and complicated it is. And all of them are sort of like about feminism and they're all, they, they all are stories that have been described as anti-feminist, um, I'm sure. Well, I'm sorry, the cat person has been described as feminist. 
and the other two have been described as feminist, feminist. but uh, rife with body shaming, which I thought was an interesting critique um, of it. Right, as Roxanne Gay said about cat person, um, I was really bothered by the fat stuff, which doesn't mean it shouldn't be there. That's how people think, and it's fiction, it's fine, but it came up so much, like we get it. I don't even think it came up so much. I think she, she made a couple of comments about how this guy had a dad bod, pretty much. Yeah, this was actually before the dad bod discourse. Um, there was a line where she sees his belly thick and soft and covered with hair and describes the hairy shelf of his belly. And then she describes him as a fat old man. Um, but why don't we sort of give a synopsis of Cat Person before we launch into it? You want to do that? Sure. So um, Cat Person is about a 20 year old Indiana University student or so it's it's implied who works at an art theater and um, a, a sort of clumsy mid thirties man starts flirting with her and they have, they have a, a text flirtation and eventually it leads to them going on a date where they have very uncomfortable sex and she later debates um, go, you know, whether or not she should ghost him and her roommate sends him a text that basically says, I'm not interested. Uh, coincidentally, that he sees her across a bar at the end and um, con you know, confronts her. And it ends with something that was very popular to write about at the time. Um, you know, a series of texts that are like, what did I do wrong? Are you there? And until he finally, you know, he sends her a series of messages until he finally ends it with, Whore. Yeah. Um, right. So this is, yeah, there's so many things about this story that seems so outdated, even a couple years back. Um, so one of them is uh, ghosting. People don't talk about ghosting anymore, do they? I think they do. I think ghosting might be the only thing in the story that still feels sal salient. Um, I made a list of like different things and I, I was like, wow, this really feels like a time capsule. Yeah, what were the? Well, so it, first of all, it feels like this kind of discourse about like women kind of lowering their standards feels dated. I, it's been, in my mind at least, it's been like completely overshadowed by the insult discourse. And it even feels like, um, you know, women talking about women's experiences have owned the hypergamy story, um, which is like very interesting to me. Uh, the way- I don't endorse the hypergamy story. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I, I used to be much more critical of it. I think that it is real in certain environments, so. Not in New York, but we'll agree to disagree. You know, what, what it might be actually is the first time I read it, um, I was, you know, I was living in Austin with my ex-husband and my only memory or impression of dating had been New York City in the early 2010s. Um, and then, so the first time I read it, I was, I, I was very, I sympathized with her a lot. And then the second time I read it, my experience of dating had been in the Bay Area where women really do have the upper hand. Yeah. <laughs> it's undeniable. Like the, I, 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 I feel bad for anyone who like subscribes to the insult ideology who has a misfortune of living in the San Francisco Bay Area because 
I would say this is probably the one place where it's really true and they're not wrong. New York is the exact opposite, but. Yeah, I mean, I will say one good thing about COVID is that most of the women in New York have either gained weight or moved back to Indiana. So I think I've been bumped up from a two to a three. I'm happy for you. But you'll always be a four in my eyes. No, I'm just <laughs> but I'll always be an eight in San Jose. Um, okay. Um, so one thing that about Cat Person, though, that I wanted to start with was that you said that he begins flirting with her. Actually, she begins flirting with him. So the first lines of the story are, Margot met Robert on a Wednesday night towards the end of her fall semester. She was working behind the concession stand at the artsy movie theater downtown when he came in and bought a large popcorn and a box of red vines. That's an unusual choice, she said. I don't think I've ever actually sold a box of red vines before. Flirting with her customers was a habit she'd picked up back when she worked as a barista and it helped with tips. Uh, and then the story goes on and talks more about like how he wasn't cute enough for her to talk to at a party, but he was cute enough for her to hit on at work, right? So like from the beginning, what's happening here is that Margot has more power than him. She's sort of like ruthlessly judging him, right? Like this is the way that we think of guys acting in public, that they're like assessing the women around them and rating them, you know, from one to 10, like men and like sociopathic women like myself. But here it's actually her that just sort of like using the ugly, pretty discourse and sort of manipulating him just to get like tips from him, basically. Well, actually, it says she didn't earn tips the movie theater, but the job was boring otherwise. So she's just sort of screwing with him for her own pleasure from the beginning. And then she, yeah, she like criticizes everything that's like wrong with him, basically. And then their flirtation develops after that. I thought that that was really interesting and something that sort of didn't get talked about in the flurry of essays after cat person came out about how this character robert was this manipulative older man who like came pretty close to raping her i don't know what story they read is is the thing because i mean even even in their description of of sex like it's it's all about like she's getting off on the path like how she has power over him yeah, right. Like in all of the sex scenes, um, you know, so like they start having sex and basically it's a little bit like awkward, like he stumbles over his shoes, stuff like that, which by the way, she could have been like empathetic or kind about, but again, she's sort of ruthlessly judging him from beginning to end of the story. Um, and but then the way that she sort of gets into it um, and like keeps the sex act going and tries to get him hard when he's lost his erection is by thinking about how she must look to him. And like, there's this point, um, I guess this is sort of like the apotheosis of this. When Robert was naked, rolling a condom onto a dick that was only half visible beneath the hairy shelf of his belly, she felt a wave of revulsion that she thought might actually break through her sense of pin stasis. But then he shoved his finger in her again, not at all gently this time. And she imagined herself from above naked and spread-eagled with this fat old man's finger inside her and her revulsion turned to self-disgust and a humiliation that was a kind of perverse cousin to arousal and and this like sort of like sets the stage for everything that continues after that she's sort of exiting her own body and moving herself into his point of view the whole time which was of course analyzed as like she's absorbed the male gaze and all this stuff um 
but I think it also says something about the purpose that like sex or like casual sex like this is like was sort of serving in young women's lives uh, in the 2000s, which we can talk about. Um, I, I mean, I think like what's interesting about this story and I think what was mostly missed is that it's, um, you know, I, and I'm, I'm surprised that there, there wasn't a lot of like, uh, like incel analysis of the story because it's not that she is, you know, has such low self-esteem that she's belittling herself, uh, you know, that she can only date this, you know, this five, right? It's that sex in her mind has been commandeered to be about her own objectification and she's not sexy enough to be the sex object to, you know, of course this isn't mentioned in the story, but like, the imagined Chad, right? It's that for her to have this power that she's been taught sex is all about, she has to do it with someone who she sees as beneath her. It is, it is in a sense, it has like nothing to do with him. She's so judgmental of him because she's not interested in him at all. She's interested in being the kind of sex object that perhaps, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in like first drafts of the story, she was comparing herself to other women. Yeah, or if in first drafts of the story, she was described as fat herself or something like that. Right. It, what's, one thing that's interesting about this story is that we have basically, um, we have basically no information about her appearance. And yet um, a Vox article critiquing it still described her as privileged because she's relatively thin. I mean, I guess, <laughs> you know, uh, her Roxanne Gay, she is less fat probably than the fat man but we don't actually know I mean something that's interesting is so I was looking um at the, you know some of you know we were both looking at some of the stories that came out about cat person at the time because remember so it was you know October 2017 is when Harvey Weinstein's accusers sort of begin in force um and everyone is talking about me too and then a couple months later uh in December this story comes out and like every single person was talking about it. Like my Facebook was just like a flurry of like women posting, you know, like me too and talking about cat person. Um, and there were so many articles about it. So here's one of them from the guardian. Uh, cat person is familiar to women who feel powerless to stop a sexual encounter. Um, because, you know, in the story cat person, there's a point where she says, um, or where the narrator says that Margot sort of like wants to stop having sex with him, but it would require too much tact. So she just keeps going with it. She doesn't know how to exit gracefully. Um, so this Guardian reporter says, and maybe that's what makes Cat Person so intriguing to so many readers, you know, after having talked about Me Too, the context. We're deep in our post-Weinstein moment, and we've pulled back the curtain on some of the insidious power discrepancies that were once hidden in the so-called privacy of a sexual encounters. There's a typo in this Guardian piece. <laughs> <laughs> so sick. Um, yeah, but then she goes on to talk about how sex is all about power and like women have related to the Rupenian story because like they also have been on the losing side of a sexual encounter, disadvantaged by the limits of verbal consent, the notion that they must accommodate all male expressions of desire, which is, which is also like bizarre, by the way, and sort of accidentally gives away the fact that the verbal consent culture doesn't actually work. Um, but... What's interesting is this in this story is that it was just 
read, you know, I, I was about to say hysterically, it was just sort of compulsively and quickly read by hundreds of people who were racing to publish on these websites about how the story was this great feminist statement about how, you know, to like update Dworkin, all sex is almost rape, you know, because the sexual encounter is unpleasant, but it's, you know, technically consensual or something. So this shows how all of young women's sex is so irredeemably flawed. Um, but reading it, it was just so striking that Margot is kind of the bad person here. She's the one who views sex through this completely narcissistic lens in which she's just, you know, trying literally to get off on her own beauty. And then the guy sends her these very nice messages. Then she, he wants her to sleep over and he says, I make great scrambled eggs. Why don't you stay over? But she, he drives her home, you know, no at problem. At four in the morning in the at, snow. <laughs> at four in the morning in the snow, because, you know, it's interesting. I remember a couple of years ago, there was this journalist who was, um, doing this book on hookup culture and she was uh, and sort of the backlash to hookup culture and she was making a documentary about it as well um, and she she interviewed me for this book and I remember asking her well you know you're saying all of this stuff but you know how was it really different in the 80s like you know what was really different didn't people have casual sex in college in the 80s and she's you know thought about it for a while this is like in a diner in like Vermont amongst a bunch of like farmers anyway and she says well back then they made us eggs in the morning I don't know that's why that detail just really struck really stuck out to me the guy is trying to do what girls say they want but she actually doesn't want it you know he like the message that he sends her is what like I had a really good time with you last night we should see each other again um you know, even before she gets to her dorm room he texts her a bunch of a bunch of hearts and like faces with hard eyes and a, and a dolphin emoji. You know, the story is all about her, her seeming superior. It says like, you know, she already had a text from him, no words, just hearts and faces with hard eyes and for some reason a dolphin. And she describes getting out of his car when he drops her off as escaping. You know, it's this very self-victimizing narration. I want to say also, you know, when they go on their date, which, you know, all of the commentators were like, oh, such a horrible date that this guy takes her on. Um, he takes her to see a Holocaust movie and she reflects that, you know, it was such a horrible date movie, but maybe he was trying to impress her by taking her to see a Holocaust movie because he didn't realize that the girl, kind of girl who works at an art house movie theater isn't going to want to see a Holocaust movie. And it reminded me of like that. Do you remember like the actual content of it, that like viral Tinder message or something? Yeah, the, I, I do. It was a screenshot that it, I guess like this girl's like philosophy major or something and someone had texted her uh have you read the stranger or like I really liked the stranger something like that and uh she just put the the tweet was just I'm going to fucking kill myself yeah and there were like thousands of retweets and stuff right and it was all these women talking about how this guy is being so condescending to her by asking if she's read the stranger you know, what's, what's interesting is it is a, I, I do think it's a very feminist story, but it's common. I think it's commenting on how we've been conditioned to objectify ourselves. The only good response to it, I think was um, like, maybe like, a, I think it was like National Review or something uh, said, you would be able to forgive his flaws if you didn't sleep with him on the first date. 
if it wasn't just about sex and it, but for her, it's just about, it's just about the power dynamic. Like it's, it's true. Like his awkward bumbling behavior is forgiven. If you go on more than one date with him, it's not, it's, it, it, bad sex happens all the time, but as you grow into a relationship with someone, it just stops mattering. Yeah. I mean, I would, yeah. Yeah. There was that piece in the national review was called dear cat person girl. Yeah. And it was basically saying like, the reason that this is unpleasant is because you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be having sex after one and a half dates. It is going to be unpleasant. I mean, the national review doesn't say this, but isn't it also true that casual sex is just like in general unpleasant like I feel like the first time you have sex with someone is often like bad obviously right like casual sex is awkward people probably shouldn't have sex that soon I I mean I totally agree it's like very rarely you know it it seems like it's very rarely satisfying yeah I mean you know all of these people have been adding me as they say on this website about how casual (laughs) sex is good for some people but it just like usually isn't. I, I feel like it probably like usually is for guys just because like vaginal intercourse is more pleasurable for men more reliably than it is for women. Um, sometimes I feel like the biggest advantage that a woman can have in this modern world um, is a short distance between her clitoris and her vagina. It increases the chance of orgasm from vaginal sex. Um, but something that I liked uh, in cat person as well was when she runs into, um, when Margot runs into Robert, the bad date, um, at the end of the story, in the local bar, she's with her friend, her guy friend named Albert. And the story reads, oh my God, that's him, she whispered, the guy from the movie theater. By then, Albert had heard a version of the story, though not quite the true one, nearly all her friends had. And then she runs over to her friends and when Margot announced that Robert was there, everyone erupted in astonishment. And then they surrounded her and hustled her out of the bar as if she were the president and they were the secret service. You know, and this struck, like this rang really, really true for me that like the point of going on dates like this is also just to have a story to tell your friends. Like this is a thing that you've talked about, the idea of having sex for the experience, which is something that I think guys- For the personal essay. Yeah, having sex for the personal essay. You want to like talk more about that? I think like especially, you know, in the the few years preceding the story, it was, um, you know, it was an it was an easy way to get attention to sort of write about your your sex life in this detached way, um, and it didn't matter how bad it was. And sex became not meaningless, but it became something to do, so you had something to talk about. And I think sex is like very often used as a proxy for these things for, you know, an interesting story or like a vessel to communicate something about yourself or about the world um, as a way to experience things you wouldn't otherwise experience. Like I mentioned last time, like you have this phenomena of women who want to sleep with certain founders or like people in certain industries so they can get a glimpse into that. Like as though going to a party wouldn't be enough or like, you know, lurking on a forum wouldn't be enough. You, the way to get the most intimate look into anything, what, whether it's the arts or tech or, you know, it could, academia in some cases, like is to fuck the person, you know, fuck someone and you get the real inside scoop. You. Who would do that? <laughs> Not me. 
Um, well, I would never sleep with a famous artist. Neither would I. <laughs> um, I feel like it's not, it, like it is definitely for the personal essay, right? Like in like the Obama years, I guess basically just because magazines were moving online and stopped paying basically, there is this huge shift to personal essay as a genre, um, which is kind of, it's kind of interesting. I feel like it's really uh, fallen off. Would you agree? Completely. And I mean, like, I wonder, you know, about the shame that a lot of people must feel that they have these like deeply personal, at this point, problematic, you know, mm -hmm. essays out there, like a lot of them pushed boundaries, like they were about these very painful topics, like incest or racism, or, um, you know, like more unambiguous cases of like sexual assault, and it's just like out in the world. And I feel like we're, we're sort of starting to see this, like, I don't want to call it sincerity, but like this level of openness as, um, as kind of passe, it's, it's, it's out of fashion now. And you have all these millennials who just showed their ass for what, like 50 bucks and, you know, being able to be on, <laughs> it happened to me on Exogene. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to talk about Exogene. I wanted to like talk about it happened to me, but the Exogene website isn't there anymore. And I temporarily forgot that web archives exist. So I thought it was all just gone. Um, but really, I mean, I remember like back in the day with that woman that wrote that book on hookup culture, she wanted me to write a personal essay for Lenny Letter, you know, Lena Dunham's website, which may, yeah. or may not still exist. I don't think it exists anymore. I mean, Lena Dunham is such a perfect example of this whole thing. I, it, you know, people like to forget at first she really was seen as a genius and all she did was just constantly like, you know, moon the audience. Uh, literally, I think in tiny furniture, right? Yeah. I mean, but that that was, I, I've actually written about this before. I call it like the culture of confession, which I'm sure is actually like referring to a real thing that's not this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there, I mean, it was just like compulsively confessing. And, you know, some of it was like kind of ironic. Um, and it's, you know, it's interesting to me is like, this started, this starts happening when you have like Gen X and boomers very sincerely oversharing in their Facebook statuses. And then you have this more like ironic kind of like this pain is real, but I'm going to talk about it in this very removed way from millennials who are then in a lot of cases making careers out of it, like Tao Lin, for example. Yeah. Um, although Facebook didn't really have boomers on it at the beginning, did it? But this isn't, the, you know, this is uh, like seven years on where it's, pe it's peaking. Like I would... I, by, uh, so Facebook was college kids only, I think 2004 to 2005, 2006, it opens up. You don't, I think you only need a .edu email address. By 2008, you, you don't have to be in school to be on it. So you, like 2009, and this is when like Alt-Lit starts becoming a thing, you, your people's parents are getting on Facebook. Mm. And then by 2014, right, which is, like the the personal essays peaking and at the same time alt lit is is dying um you know there's lots of lots of articles about the death of alt lit um you know, definitely boomers and gen x are on facebook what happened to alt lit people all so uh what happened to them and like like where are they now or like what why did all it die like where are they now what do they do now 
a lot of them are um, are sex workers um, or they're working like sort of normie jobs. I think it's a mixed bag. Like alt lit people either went sort of like post left anti woke or they became very very woke. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean like the the whole the whole spirit of like I'm gonna share my whole self has completely been extinguished. Yeah, I mean, I think it also came from Tumblr as well, right? Like in those years, Tumblr was like absolutely huge uh, before it, it died because they banned porn, I guess. Yeah, it, it, and the only person that I know of at least who's who's spoken about this is Angela Nagel in Kill All Normies. I think mm-hmm. like her thesis, you know, that something awful breaks off and you have basically like two, you know, two strains of culture, 4chan and Tumblr is totally correct. Like the anything that felt like, you know, like a Tumblr freak show in like 2013, 2012 is now like literally informing public policy today. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because um, I don't know if you read something awful, but I was a big something awful girl from when I was like nine. That's why my brain doesn't work. And I only have like male friends in you. Um, <laughs> something awful became weird Twitter and Tumblr became for some reason, the democratic party. And I just want answers about why that happened. But all of this sort of like niche, like identity politics stuff, it never would have had the ascendancy that it did if it wasn't for Tumblr. Like that was when people learn to center their identities around these smaller and smaller and smaller communities um, that had this really outsized impact in their lives because you could just spend your entire day and night reading this. People people like James Lindsay will tweet, you know, who, by the way, who I, I like quite a bit despite, you know, but he'll tweet 2000 times a day about how this came from academia. No, it was, and I will die on this hill. It was teenagers taking, bastardizing things from academia, mm-hmm. writing about it on Tumblr. And then you have these vice journal, these opportunist vice journalists who go on Tumblr and they're like, oh, this is weird and niche. I'm going to write about this as though it's like very serious. And then it's just mm-hmm. like a contagion that spreads everywhere. Yeah, um, the term contagion is actually canceled. Uh, yeah, that, that's why Jesse Single is being called transphobic for using the term contagion. So you just, uh, by the way, I'm not associated with you. I'm an independent contractor. <laughs> um, no, but you're, you're, you're totally right. And there's something so sort of like vampiric um, and really kind of atrocious about the way the thoughts of these like protracted adolescence and you know in some cases literal adolescence uh were just fossilized on the web um forever um I mean like I think that there's also I mean I think that there has been an impact of academia like my thesis in part is that a big part of this was that academic jobs you know particularly humanities became nearly impossible to find after 2008 like um, I don't have the statistics at hand, but they're like actually like horrifying. Let's just let's just say, you know, for argument's sake, the you know number of humanities jobs went down by half. Um, but programs they didn't reduce at all. In some cases, they increased uh, the number of students that they would admit. So there was just this overproduction of PhD graduates that had to find something to do. And I think what they ended up doing. I mean, I know this from my lived experience. Um, is desperately trying to write uh, generic cultural criticism for whoever would take them. 
Um, and so instead of actually like concentrating on their academic work, what they would try to do is go into alternative academic careers, uh, which meant parlaying their you know, fluency and critical theory into something that Vice would publish. Hence a deluge of articles about like how Foucault used butt plugs or something like that. Um, you know, that, that's a bad example um, because it's probably actually true. Um, <laughs> but, but, but you know what I, you know what I mean? It was sort of like academia light, uh, moving into online journalism at this sort of reckless pace and none of the people editing them had any actual capacity. Well, let's, I mean, let's, let's slow down there. What editors, right? Like you, yeah. I mean, even for something like the guardian, you find a typo and it's it, it, like mm -hmm. this, there are no editors. A, a good editor wouldn't let like half the it happened to me articles be published under people's real names. And sure, like in that, like a lot of those exogene pieces aren't up anymore, but like that shit will, you know, Im like imagine like the, I'm, actually I'm not gonna Streisand affect this particular article, but like there was <laughs> one, the, cause I feel bad for this woman, this one woman, and I don't know if it was exogene or if it was like bustle or you know what whatever vice she she wrote something that was very vulnerable it was read as racist it got posted all over the web her she published it under her real name and now i'm sure to this day if you google this woman's name it's going to be like her full like quite unique name racist right like that's yeah. and especially in today's climate it's it's just an editor would have said like okay fuck I, you probably didn't mean to frame it this way. It's going to read this way. Are you sure? Or I'm not going to publish it or let's make some changes here. And that never happened. Yeah, that's true. That stuff was just sort of slapped up probably without being read actually in a lot yeah. of cases. I mean, there's a, a lot of typos too is the other thing. Just like literally like a lot of it didn't make sense because mm -hmm. it's people who are not journalists they I might mean, be it, academics but academics but they <laughs> they weren't I mean, journalists I remember there was someone in my graduate program who she was like really trying to hustle to make a you know a journalism career um and she had a certain area of academic expertise but and you know she tried to milk that for what it was worth but she would also just bust out articles on like any thing that she possibly could she knew nothing about these topics and these things got published I mean just because she would sort of choose the trendy topic of the month. I mean, she would do stuff like X, whatever book and me too, you know, just sort of, this is the classic formula, like critical theory thingy, cultural thingy going together. And then it instantly gets published. And I think it really did a disservice because we've seen that like the culture as a whole just has no capacity to consume art anymore. Like the story cat person was not referred to as a short story by people. It was referred to as a piece or an essay, which is kind of interesting, like this total like collapse of the boundaries between nonfiction and fiction, where this was just sort of, and the way, you know, people like Roxanne Gay, like criticized it for being fat shaming and stuff like that. There's this huge like moralizing about anything in fiction um, because it's always seen as a personal endorsement. There's just no division between the narrator and the author. Um, it's sort of like, remember when Juno Diaz was getting canceled? Does anyone remember that? People remember that, right? I, I sort of remember it. I mean, God, the my only memory of him is like, I kept seeing him when I lived in New York and then I moved to Cambridge and then I kept seeing him again. And I was like, am I just like, and I never said hello. I never met this guy. And that's- Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah I, kept, I, I, kept, I kept seeing him when I lived in Miami 
And like, I'm pretty sure that the person that I think is Juno Diaz once like started talking to me at a bar, like he was like good beer or something, you know, which didn't really seem like a Miami thing to say, you know, for obvious reasons. So I was like, I'm pretty sure this is Juno Diaz, but I'm not totally sure that it's Juno Diaz. And like, I can't just ask, are you Juno Diaz, right? Like, what if it's just another guy that looks like that? And then, like, ironically, I was scared that I would come across as racist or something. So I just, like, stared at the guy, didn't say anything, and walked away. So if Juno Diaz is listening to this, it, like, it just that I didn't, I thought it might have just been another bald Latino guy. So anyway, and so when Juno Diaz was getting canceled, it was basically because he came on to MFA students, as I understand it. Like, not his MFA students, but MFA students at poetry readings. Like, he tried to kiss them and stuff like that. Um, and a couple of weeks before this, he had published this article in the New Yorker about how he got raped when he was a kid. And then people were like, oh, this is bad that he published this essay to sort of try to like create a bulwark around himself. And like, did this even really happen to him? Or, you know, it was sort of horrifying. But another thing that happened was that people sort of started looking at his fiction to try to, you know, like, you know, crucify his character by saying, well, if you read any of these books, you know, they're like sort of all from the point of view of this character, like Junior. Like you can see that he's a sexist because his main character um, is always like talking about women in these sexist terms and he's a philanderer and like he objectifies women constantly. Like all of the signs are there. Someone who's not a sexist wouldn't have written this. And then on the other side, of course, you had a couple of people defending it by saying like, oh, well, this is just Latino culture. Yeah, I, you're making a lot of faces. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that was my, that was my reaction it was like it was just like so many horrible takes all at once like like my perspective which is like Chino Diaz was like a basically like brilliant writer um with you know who probably was like a bit of a womanizer you know um but also like a brilliant writer who like wrote about a philandering character for years in a series of brilliant books that were heralded by many people as like an extremely important voice in Latino literature. But then the moment that he was seen as a bad guy, these books were retroactively read as like confessions of his immoral character. Um, you know, like now I like teach creative writing and it's like, um, it's like, I think the majority viewpoint now um, is that you can't write racist or sexist characters because that's bad. Because you shouldn't like put those voices into literature. I mean, it's a, it's the same logic as like you you can't platform people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With you know who have the wrong identity or have the wrong opinion, even like even with the explicit intention of like underscoring why it's wrong. Yeah, I mean, I was like at a. I was in like a, a workshop basically where someone was showing the rough cut of a film that he had made about like black cops, you know, in, in the current climate. Um, and he had included interviews with the communications director for this police department, who was a white guy who was saying the problem of police brutality was exaggerated. Um, but anyway, the director was saying um, that he was going to get rid of all of these interviews with the, the white police chief and replace those interviews or not police chief, but like director of communications or something. Um, 
and replace them with interviews with an academic anthropologist or something who was going to explain why police brutality is such a bad problem in America. And everyone in the workshop was just sort of like, yeah, this is great. You shouldn't platform these people. But it, I mean, it creates a, a worse historical product. And also, if you're trying to show that, you know, in this case, police brutality is a problem, right? Like, shouldn't you have someone from the police denying that it's a problem? Like, isn't that sort of an essential part of this story uh, that people think that, you know, it's a conspiracy that's exaggerated on social media? I mean, that seems way more interesting to me than like what an academic has to say about it. Um, but I think that that's the majority viewpoint is that bad voices shouldn't be in literature. And you see a small version of that with this, you know, New Yorker story cat person because the character was, you know, the author was criticized for having a character that doesn't like fucking a fat guy or does like it, but for the wrong reasons. It's so interesting too, because it's like her, her description of him being fat to me seemed more about him being old, right? He's not even old, he's 34. It seemed more about his age because she describes her like her perfect young body. Like she it describes is, it him as an old man. Right, like it is, it's not, it's not about, it's, it's not at all about him being some fat slob. It's, it's like, she sees herself, she's clearly like, you know, grasping for anything to help elevate her, her sexual, sexual desirability. Mm -hmm. And her youth is is the most available thing, which tells us like some very interesting things about how she might see herself or what she you know possibly looks like. No, and I, th I think that it's like a common thing for young women with older men. I remember there was this Joyce Carol Oates collection called um, my my favorite book, my favorite of her like one hundred books of short stories, is um, like the Assignations. Um, and it's sort of micro fiction. And anyway, there's this one where this woman is sort of like being like feels herself, this very young woman feels herself to be sort of like being stared at by an older guy. And she's described as like having nothing attractive about her except her youth. And this is what sort of propels the story, this sort of like feeling that very young women have of the power that they have over older men on the basis of like their beauty and if not their beauty, their youth that this is like a currency that they have that they can exert and that's why she feels powerful in this story because she feels like she has a perfection that he must be coveting like so that she can you know she can treat him like shit basically um and still get rewarded by these kind text messages from him and doubly by being able to treat herself like the victim when she talks to her friends and treat him like this predator um I think the question kind of is like, is this story a description of a pathology or is it a description of the, you know, most common sexual dynamic? Like, is Margot a normal young woman? I think in, I think, yeah, I, I do. And I, I think, think so that's, too. that's what the, the insult complaint is because for many of them, the only, um, sexual attention they've received or romantic attention has been from women like Margot who lead on these guys who they see as beneath them and then you know show them nothing but contempt when they return the feeling. I mean I know a guy who has this complaint he's older and um he you know 
continuously has this problem where younger women seem to be showing interest in him, but when he asks them, they all say, no, you know, I'm not interested in you. Sometimes like, why would you think that I'm interested in you? Um, and, you know, for context, he's like a kind of famous artist, which like supports my earlier point. Um, and then he says, you know, okay. Um, and then he starts talking to them less, you know, like maybe before he would call them every day. Now he doesn't call them every and day. And I'm sure that they resent that. They resent yeah. the loss of attention. And then they tell him it's sexist of you. I'm thinking about this one who worked for this. I won't give away identifying details, but you know, you know, in this sort of circle, right? You know, he said like, you know, it, like it's sexist of you. Like you only are interested in women as romantic interests. You're not interested in my friendship because he stopped calling her every day after she got back together with her boyfriend. But it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not friendship. I, so I, I wrote about this um, in December. I, I wrote like a short article. I think I called it the inverse of the fuck boy. Yeah, and you, yeah. You, ha yeah, you have this type of woman who call like they they treat you like a boyfriend mm -hmm. um and you know it's even though like like even though th they might be completely like desexualized in their communications it's still the frequency itself reveals yeah. something about it and then when you pull back or i guess you know like when the guy pulls back and says like look like this is too intense or doesn't say anything at all just like takes a hint that you're not romantically interested or if you explicitly tell him that you're not it. interested right then then they they accuse they accuse the man in question of like well you don't really care about my friendship and like look i've i mean i can write about this with such confidence because like i've i've done it myself and i've I, done I, it a million it's times not, it's not it's not right I've, I've definitely done it um and i i, I feel bad about it it's yeah. it's not okay right I mean like also like the women you know they never in these scenarios actually totally desexualize themselves right because like they know that they have to give some sort of sure of no they're they're they sexualize themselves but desexualize the language uh, you, you know it's, it's a cut it's it's like the kind of thing where it's like if, if you had a boyfriend at the time and they read the, the, the text messages or overheard the phone calls or were a fly on the wall at the coffee shop, they'd be like, it's like, technically it's fine, but it's like, it's not fine. Like you, you know, why, like you're in a relationship. Why are you like drunk texting this guy? Yeah. Why are you, or, you know, like it, there's like any number of like iterations of this. Why are you so emotionally forthright? And it's, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that male and female friendships can't exist. I have tons of male friends and I think it's, it's well known, like it's just a friendship. And I would, I would be totally comfortable with like, with my boyfriend seeing my communications with these people. But that's not to say that like friendship can't be abused and that it's not often abused as some kind of weird power play. Yeah, I think it's also really common for women to um, like intrigue with other guys because they're having low self-esteem in a relationship or something like that. Or also like uh, to intrigue because they kind of want to exit a relationship, but they don't want to be alone. So they want to, you know, make sure that there's another guy waiting in the wings. But when a guy just can't, doesn't want to have that kind of humiliating role, um, the women just like react with horror and just accuse him of being like 
sexist and like uncomfortable with being friend zoned and misogynistic you know like guys kind of have the right to like not want to be friend zoned right yeah I totally especially if you're giving them the wrong signals and I don't think that women are as naive as they sometimes feign to be like I can say which of my male friendships are real friendships and which of my male friendships have just been sort of like uh supporting infrastructure for my crumbling self-esteem it's pretty (laughs) clear which is which I yeah I mean I I I think I think you're totally right and I, I I do think that there's a real fear among women of like of losing this because there is like there is something to be said for like the the self-esteem boost you get when it's like well my boyfriend is a little bit busy right now or like I think he was checking out another woman well at least there's like you know this okay looking guy who like lives in my phone who will (laughs) right who will you know text me back before like the text I sent is even done sending right like It it feels very nice to be wanted and like women know that they have this power over men I will say though, men, there, there are men who do this too. They're not fuck boys because it's, it's not really sexual, uh, but they definitely like, they, they, they do this as well. Like, I think this is maybe just, it, it's more, it's more ubiquitous among women, but I mean, I think I've definitely been like the, like the fat friend of like the good looking guy who like, you know, the, the real, the real romantic prize is busy. So it's like, let's, let's see what DF is up to and <laughs> really total I mean like in like in 2020 even like I think the past I think that I'm just like too bad at texting back is the reason guys don't do that to me I think it's I mean it's happened to me like twice in my life like both with people who like are uh you know unambiguously chads like they really (laughs) are like the the 10 out of 10 the I'd never date you, but can you tell me why I'm smart? <laughs> oh my, oh my God. My, my gay ass is like, all right, well, uh, you made me read the road to serfdom. That cool. You know, it's like, I are love you, how you love Ayn Rand. <laughs> wow. You really, something happened to you, um, you know? So like, I guess just to, you know, to bring it all home, what's, was horrifying about Cat Person is that it's a really good short story about how women can be bad, are bad, like are complicated and very flawed and can use men and treat them in demeaning ways and hurt their feelings more or less and consciously. Also, and also that like these men aren't necessarily like perfect themselves that like maybe they are reading like um, you know, like pick up artist forums or something, which at the time was like somewhat like salient and not so much anymore. And like, they can be buffoons and that doesn't make it right to manipulate them. Yeah. And I am shocked that, well, this story was so seamlessly read as something about how men exploit women in sex and about how women have no power when it's a story that from beginning to end is about the power that women have. I, I think it's, I mean, I think that National Review review of Cat Person hits a nail on the head. The reason it was misread that way is not only because of the things that we've already discussed that it's just like, you know, this like factory journalism, right? <laughs> but it's also because like people have, 
sex after one date and it's there's no awareness that like if you if like on another timeline if this was a different story if she had kept having sex with him mm-hmm. it might have gotten better it might have gotten more comfortable but we're so conditioned to view and especially at that time is like sex is a single serving act that either is you know the culmination of however many months or weeks of desire or or days of desire or it's just this like humiliation that you have to get through because we all objectify ourselves now and it's 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 like going to the grocery store for for produce it's you know having casual sex for a self-esteem boost yeah um i mean the way that she lacks power is that it you know we don't really have power over our own feelings so much and so it doesn't really work the way that she wants it to uh we don't have power over what other people do so he eventually calls her whore and presumably this makes her feel worse about herself but there's this thing that uh, Rupenian said about the story that I th- about the ending of the story that I thought was really interesting, which was Margot keeps trying to construct an image of Robert based on incomplete and unreliable information, which is why her interpretation of him can't stay still, Rupenian said in an interview. The point at which she receives unequivocal evidence about the kind of person he is is the point at which the story ends. So to review the ending of the story is when he sends her a series of very nice text messages, well, drunk, um, but she doesn't respond to any of them. And then he says, whore. So I thought that this was, this. I feel like the ending really cheapens the story. It's not unequivocal evidence about the kind of person he is. You know, the kind of Sounds person like, he is, is multiple things. I, it seems like she buckled though under the pressure of Twitter because you can't, possibly write this story and then you know say that that's what the that's what the meaning of the ending is to me the meaning of the ending is like this is he's been he's been holding it together he's clearly a flawed person but not so flawed that he deserves to be painted as a rapist which is what so many reviews of this did he's it's he's venting his final frustration like the only power he has is being able to call her a whore to become like a laughing stock yet again yeah. And by the way, like, you know, I, th- I think I think that's like totally like hits the nail on the head. And after this, we should talk about her other story, which I think shows that like, that you're right, that she buckled under the pressure of Twitter. Um, but I was just going to say that the only really bad thing that he does in this whole story um, is that he has sex with her a little bit rough, which like, by the way, like a lot of women like. Like, I don't want to say most women, because I'm not totally sure, but like many women are totally fine with like doggy style, which is his great sin in this piece. Um, I mean, this was also around the time that there was that like episode of Girls where like Adam Driver's character has sex with that like one character and it's sort of like rough. Do you remember what I'm talking about? And then there was all this talk on Twitter about like, was there a rape scene in, uh, in Girls? Oh yeah, yeah, it was, it was the episode on all fours where Adam and his girlfriend Natalia are having sex and um, Adam asks her to crawl towards him on all fours because he says, I want to fuck you from behind, hit the walls with you. And then he ejaculates on her, even though she says, no, not on my dress. And then afterwards she says, I don't think I like that. I like really didn't like that. And that episode launched like a million articles about how girls just visually assaulted us in the Hollywood Reporter. And was that a rape scene in Girls um, in uh, This Is Slate? 
Um, like this was a time when like rough sex was being seen as like rape. Um, which is, it's, it was and it wasn't though. It was like, if, if it's branded, right? Like if, if you, if, you know, if you go to Babeland and buy rope or whatever the fuck, I, you know, I'm completely sexually boring. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I mean, props it, are boring. Sure. But like, if you go, if you go and buy some kind of prop for your sex, it's fine. It has, but it has to be subcultural. It has to be a product. Yeah. But if it's just like this organic thing that happens and there's not like, you know, a sufficient enough of, you know, spectacle around it, then it's, it's bad. Like being choked and, you know, like, only like your boyfriend only being able to get off if you call him daddy is fine right or like you only being able to get off if you call call your sex partner daddy forget boyfriends uh that's fine but um if it if it just happens and it's it's like definitely assault which is really which is it's just really strange and like i'm gonna repeat something i said on the first episode like did people think like orgasms happen in a vacuum because it seems like that yeah i mean this is something that we should definitely talk about more which is like the way um like certain like sexual proclivities which are very very common are now only acceptable if you brand them as part of a subculture and kind of like not pathologize them but like silo them off like so like as you just said like rough sex like snm is talked about more than ever like it's sort of like banalized with like 50 shades of gray and stuff like that and like props are everywhere and people are like supposed to be required to have lubricant like in their bedrooms and stuff like that um but if someone you know like asks his girlfriend to get on all fours that's seen as a sin and like possibly rape um and likewise with like wanting to have very tender sex that's now called being demisexual even though these are both probably just like what most people want in varying doses at varying times in their relationships um which i should i should you know bring up like to the demisexual point consent consensual tender sex is demisexuality mm -hmm. uh but if you know like your boyfriend of like two or three months like looks you in the eye during sex and says i love you you know that's that could be the the subject of a think piece about how mm -hmm. you know what is emotional sexual assault you know it, it would be called love bombing right it, I mean, like it, my, this, this, I guess as personal as I get on, on this, but like, for example, like my like boyfriend after we first like slept together, told me I, I love you afterwards. And everyone I told this to was horrified. You know, when I was a young virgin, I probably like always wanted a guy to say, I love you after sex. It feels sort of nice to be told I love you after sex, but this is now being called love bombing, which is literally a term from like, for, from the domestic abuse sphere for talking about how women are kept in abusive relationships through manipulative behavior. And now it's seen as on that spectrum to tell a girl that you've been hanging out with all the time that you love her after you first sleep together I mean any affection at all and well so like to, to be to be fair right like because ghosting is so ubiquitous it you know bursts of affection whether like love bombing is real um but bursts of affection are now looked on with cynicism and skepticism and it's like well be careful that you're not talking to a clinical narcissist because there's always the risk that they'll just disappear 
Mm -hmm. And as you posted about recently, the borderline personality girl and the narcissistic personality guy are the couple du jour um, in our circles. Why don't we talk a little bit about, do you want to talk about the feminist or the bad boy next? Let's talk about the bad boy. I hated that story so much. I felt physically ill after reading. I mean, Repenian, she got, you know, I think a $1.7 million advance for her book, uh, which was originally titled, You Know You Want This or something. Yeah, You Know You Want This. Isn't that um, the, a Mary Gateskill story? That, like, I think that is a Mary Gateskill story. I don't, I don't know where my... By the way, she's trying so hard. I, I actually like, skill. yeah, I like both of their writing a lot, but it's just like, I didn't, I, you know, I was like browsing the, the Amazon reviews and not a soul made that comparison. Uh, well, there's someone commenting on, uh, reviewing on Amazon um, that said, I think of collections by Mary Gateskill, for instance, oh, okay. that offer the same pack of the bizarre and lewd and strange, but are much better done yeah i mean you know you want this is not a very good collection of stories but anyway she got a 1.7 million dollar advance for this right on the heels of cat person being <coughs> this you know provoking this media flurry um and then she comes out with this collection that no one likes and no one buys um because you know the churn of internet discourse is so fast um and then i guess the story was retitled because the one that you and I bought the cover says cat person and other stories it doesn't say you know you want this right yeah it's like she was a one-hit wonder and we are probably the only people who have bought her book in 2021 yeah I mean which is it makes me sad as like someone who I don't know enjoys writing short stories wants people to read their fiction yeah well you have your sub stack and your stories on twitter are really good but yeah this story bad boy is like horrifying <laughs> and i think it, it's it's the best book in this this best story in this collection i've heard so what is that said that's yikes i've heard I it's mean, the best story by far what i think is valuable about this story is i well first of all why don't you say what it's about because it like honestly made me sick it made me like horny and sick at the same time. So, <laughs> um, okay. So the story "Bad Boy" um, is narrated in the like the we. Okay, it's like narrated in the first person plural, which is weird. Okay, and I'm sure she's very self-conscious of this. The Virgin Suicides is the only other work of contemporary literature to be narrated in this voice. Um, so it's narrated by a couple that lives together, and we don't know anything about the couple. We don't know if they're heterosexual or lesbian or anything, uh, which becomes important. So their friend comes over and he's broken up with his girlfriend that he's on again, off again with, um, and he stays over. And he just sort of like keeps sleeping on their couch and they don't like this at first because they wanna have sex, but like they don't want their friend to hear them. So they start having sex anyway. Um, and then they sort of start getting into the fantasy that their friend out there on the couch is listening to them have sex. And they start even leaving the door open a little bit. And then they start, you know, bossing him around and making fun of him about like, is he sleeping with the couch? Is he like jerking off with the couch or into the couch and stuff like that? Like, um, and then they start making these jokes in front of other people. And then basically they like get really drunk with him and want to watch him jerk off. And he starts. And then they like freak out, but then in short order, they're having these weird demeaning threesomes. And he leaves at some point and goes back to his girlfriend and they 
kind of break into his house like they have a spare set of keys and watch him and his girlfriend having sex and start screaming at him to get off of her um and he's like no I just want to be like normal and the girlfriend's like you guys are disgusting I know everything that's been going on it's horrible and they boss their friend around until he strangles his girlfriend to death and that's and continues fucking her dead body and continues fucking her dead body and then they say don't you see the bad thing you've done you're a very bad boy only thing I thought I mean besides just like utter disgust because I'm like kind of you know I I hate to use the word but like uh necrophilia is triggering and repulsive to me that Uh, wasn't the part that wasn't the part I thought was sexy okay I thought Uh, three was sexy and then it went way too far yeah I mean also isn't it crazy that I have to say necrophilia is triggering to me Uh, you know other than just assume it would like upset literally anyone like as a homo <laughs> homo sapiens you can't just assume that you're necrophilia negative um but it's like I an mean, article that just came out in teen vogue like about cannibalism, cannibalism. yeah like cannibalism Jeez. can be a healthy kink but what whatever his name is did is not it uh so the, i mean this is a good segue to my point the thing i took away from the short story is like these kinks aren't meaningless like like sure I buy that sometimes it's play but when for a lot of people it really isn't play and we're deluding ourselves um and it actually speaks to in you know if not something negative in your psychology something significant that's maybe worth like just knowing about yourself not necessarily something to fix but like to say that it's just it's this meaningless thing and we don't know why certain things turn us on and then like the oft used example of like, well, some people are turned on by balloons. What's well, like, it, no, I mean, these things have some meaning and that's the only value I've got, I got from the story. What do you think the meaning is here? I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I mean, one, so thing is, one thing is that like public sex, for example, like having, I don't know what the term for that fetish is, like where you want to be watched exhibitionism (laughs) yeah true I did (laughs) how many years of postgraduate education (laughs) um to ask you what exhibitionism is but like exhibitionism is about having power over the other people for example like having power over the people that are watching you it's not neutral um for the necrophilia I mean God, that was just so disgusting. I mean, the thing is, like, it, it, to me, it communicated, it's not just that they were getting off on the power imbalance, right? And it's like, they didn't see him as subhuman in the context of a sexual situation. They saw him as subhuman, just period. They saw him as subhuman because he was lonely and pathetic and living on their couch. Like, they were really getting off on the fact that he was sort of breaking down after this breakup and, like, needed to be with them and didn't want to be alone. Like, he says to them, like, well, I don't want to go back to my apartment because it makes me really sad to see all of, you know, my ex-girlfriend stuff or like to see the plants and things like that. Um, and they just really get off on imagining this loser out there on the couch listening to them have sex. You know, it, if this story was written today or if it was written by like a slightly different person, I feel like the the threesomes and, um, you know, their, their growing attraction to him would be like read as this like, quirky or written rather is just like quirky thing that's just like 
yeah, just like, oh, this is just like a feature of our relationship now. And it doesn't like, we're still best friends. It's, you know, <laughs> you fuck your friends and it doesn't mean anything. And maybe we think he's a little bit annoying, but like the sex thing's separate. A guy couldn't write this though. Oh, totally. I'm, yeah, there's no way. Not even, not even a gay guy. No guy could come even close to this. Imagine if it was like um, a heterosexual couple and then it's a woman friend who's broken up with her boyfriend. Jesus. Like, and then the story, well, then the story would end with her choking her boyfriend to death. Um, so, so that part wouldn't work. But like making the female friend engage in threesomes with them. Um, yeah, there's no way that story would get published. Um, I mean, I don't have all that much to say about this story, except that it shows that Rupenian has a really, really dark mind and is not like a simple feminist the way she was interpreted by the slate totally not industrial complex i mean she definitely like bandied herself about like i mean she even said that like the twitter dog pile was getting to her and then she like rebranded herself as like a kind of like generic mainstream woke feminist Mm -hmm. um and then you actually read her other work and it's like she's more she reminds me a lot of jenny from the l word um which again like bookmark maybe for another episode I do think there is like this weird thing going on at like the top of sex positivity where like like any sort of uh like you know scare quotes deviant sex had to like have some kind of weird like morbid or like fantastical appendage to like make it more palatable um Mm -hmm. which as like this happened in the l word nonstop. it was just like it, it, it couldn't just be lesbians it had to also have some like weird crime element or whatever um but anyway yeah long story short long way of saying I went on a real tangent there she reminded me a lot of Jenny from the L word who like you know was like notorious for being like sort of dark and like attention seeking in a lot of ways mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean cat person felt very like real to me um, I loved cat person I, I loved it the first time I read it I love, and I I still love it now. I guess I want to make clear that, like, I think Cat Person is an amazing story and I really relate to the main character, Um, but it's something that I hate about myself. Like, it's not I'm the victim. Maybe at some high level, I'm the victim of, like, a patriarchal society in which I'm only able to view myself through the male gaze or something like that. But in the moment, I'm not the victim. I'm an insecure person trying to use guys as a sort of, bulwark against um against like sadness um and emptiness i mean it made me think of this romare movie full moon over paris which i think i was telling you about but it's like about a young woman living on the outskirts of paris with her boyfriend who's older and kind of like less attractive than her and she likes to party she's cool she's kind of like a she makes weird lamps you know she's like a artist um and she goes to the city a lot and like her friend who's really like hot and cool is trying to seduce her and her guy friend who's trying to get with her says to her you know you're always dating these guys that are below you because you think that it'll make you secure like to date a guy who you think is ugly or like not cool enough or not smart enough or not urbane enough um and of course at the end of the movie you know like it doesn't matter if I give a spoiler no one's gonna watch this anyway it turns out that her not that cool like 
you know, she cheats on her not that cool boyfriend. And then she goes back and is like ready to be honest with him and like have a real relationship and commit to him. And it turns out that this whole time she's been neglecting him to go to these parties and sort of flirt with her friend. Um, he's started having an affair with just a normal woman that lives in their suburb and they run off together, you know, like she shows up, you know, early in the morning and there's a note from him that, you know, I still love you, but you know, you obviously don't love me. So I've gone off with whatever, whatever. Um, and I feel like Cat is it's about that dynamic. And the, the part, the, the manipulation part is always cut out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I find that again, like uh, the manosphere or incels or, you know, like that pretty much that, that whole side of the fence is continuously pointing this out. And they would be right. It's just that not every display of female vulnerability is manipulation, but they're, you know, they're correct in saying that it's so often ignored or minimized. Yeah, totally. Um, You know, the feminist is such an interesting story. Do we want to talk about it or like, have we come to a satisfactory conclusion about cat person? I mean, the lesson of cat person is that it is a great story about a subject that's not talked about enough, which is how females are manipulative. And maybe we make maybe now we're far enough away from me too that we can all collectively go back and read it again, uh, and read it to be what it's actually about, um, and not just like a personal essay about how women are these poor victims of older men who are fat and hairy. I I think we could talk about the feminist because I think the feminist is sort of satisfying the male side of that equation in an yeah. interesting and honest way. Yeah. Do you want to introduce uh, the feminist? Sure. Um, the feminist is by, as we said, Tony can, can't pronounce his last name. Um, he teaches creative writing classes in Brooklyn, though, if anyone's interested. And uh, it's, you know, very simply, it's about this feminist guy who, through his whole life, fails to lose his virginity and is constantly sort of clinging to this idea of like how good he is to women. Um, and, you know, like, of eventually like he, I guess he doesn't totally fail to lose his virginity because he does have like one unsatisfying sexual encounter with a woman and then ends up seeing prostitutes. Um, but, you know, by the end of the story, he comes to the conclusion of like, it, it doesn't like being this good feminist doesn't really matter if you're a man, it's a, it's a scam. Um, and women will, you know, in some cases like prefer literal rapists over you. It's it's a demoralizing existence. You know, it's so funny. I'm on Tony's Twitter and his bio says 5'4". I am. I actually actually reached out to him and asked him for creative writing lessons a few months ago. Um, And then I stopped being able to like log into the email address where I, anyway, that's neither here nor there. I mean, I could, I could hit him up. I'm 5'1", so... I mean, I'm still shorter than him. You're not single, but you're available. I'm not single, but I'm available. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I I do need more friends. So maybe I can friend zone him or something. Um, But really, it's just such a great story. Like I I told you, like you recommended this to me, but a couple of weeks ago, one of my students recommended it to me too, which is kind of disturbing actually that one of my male somewhat based students would think that I would like this. I'm not sure what I did. it's all about vibes babe <laughs> yeah I mean I guess he's intuitive <laughs> um because I did love this story so much <laughs> I mean it was a, it was a little bit like 
at times it was a little bit too on the nose, but I guess you really have to like hammer the point in to get stuff like this controversial published, you know? Um, yeah. It was so, it was so funny. I mean, like the parts where he's, oh my God, it was, it was so perfect. Like the parts where he's talking about the Q-Pock friends. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, I, I sent you some of the quotes that I thought were funniest, but yeah, like basically like he has the, like, you know, he just gets totally like pilloried by all of his friends for even complaining about the fact that no one will sleep with him, that he's left college and no one sucked with him. He's like reached 30, no one sucked with him. Like all of these women are continually rejecting him. But whenever he brings it up, he's just shot down and told that he is this like entitled man that just expects every woman to like put out for him because he's a nice guy. And I think I'm what this story sort of suggests is like, yeah, maybe, like, one of them should have. I I think also, like, there's this thing that happens where people assume that men are purely sexual and that uh -huh. they don't want any other sort of, like, structure around sex, that they don't need any kind of, like, validation or, you know, intimacy. Um, we've been, like, conditioned, you know, even the most progressive people have been conditioned into thinking that, like, men are sexual vessels and, like, all they care about is sex. And, uh, you know, a display of affection or a desire for affection from a man is, you know, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And like what I've found out in my like recent travels, I think, um, in the manosphere is like men really like need like emotional care and stuff too, right? Like men want mommy girlfriends. Um, which is said in this degrading way, but men do want affection. Like there's this great part of the story where it says um, he tried paying for sex, hoping more experience will give him confidence. And while he is strongly pro-sex workers' rights, he still resents having to pay for something that someone somewhere ought to offer enthusiastically. And then it, it's, God, it's so funny, this passage about the prostitute, but like, um, it's totally right. I mean, something that irks me in the insult discourse is like, people's reaction of like oh well if sex work was legal that would solve the incel problem like my joke that I'm solving the incel problem on the blockchain uh with uber for prostitutes um but it totally wouldn't right because like sex isn't about just like releasing semen into a vessel or something like that like if that were the case then masturbation I mean, the, would be the effective. incel doesn't want like simply to fuck the incel wants to be desirable Right. That's why, like, I mean, I think we should have a whole episode about this. And it's something that I'm like, I, I mean, I sent you my like article about it or whatever, but like the idea that, you know, you can have like a universal basic girlfriend is like, has been around for decades in one form or another, like the idea of sexual redistribution, but it's not going to work because the idea is that you are like voluntarily sought after, like men want to succeed in the free market of sex. Like the reason that it's just like, well, Becky and like nostalgia, I guess, for monogamy is because it like created a more equal market in which like the natural equilibrium was more likely to lead you to have a girlfriend. Like what I'm trying to say is like these like morons like seem to have never met a person like never intuited like what a person wants, which is that everyone wants to feel wanted and like beautiful and desirable and paying for sex workers, never gonna get you that, you know, my boyfriend like is sort of like, you know, he, he's a, sure. 
you know he's like seen tons of prostitutes you know and like the problem is that you feel spiritually like depleted and empty afterwards it scratches an itch but it doesn't scratch the same itch and for you know 99 of people it's really demoralizing it's i mean you see this all every time there's like you know some kind of uh like if if there's someone who has murdered someone and it's suspected that this person's an incel people always say well if they really cared about fucking they would just see a sex worker right and i think like recently like i had like a tweet go viral where i just called on these people out and it's like what the fuck <laughs> you know oh like, yeah i think was that like was that my first like tweet or that was one of my first tweets was i think responding to that thing where i was like but that's not what sex is like sex isn't just about like putting your penis in a vagina like that's like the world would be a much simpler place because there are prostitutes everywhere like by the way it's like very common like ubiquitous right so like if the incel problem were really about like just getting off it could quite easily it would not exist it is what i'm saying the problem is that everyone wants to have a girlfriend that loves them and like strokes their hair and talks about like neon genesis evangelion with them (laughs) (laughs) but this this story is just like great i mean it's such a it's such a hard subject and i feel like so many people in talking about the incel problem they try to make it like not about looks sometimes because it's true like the incel thing like r slash incels which like melted my brain and has made me like unfit for relationships because i read it for too many years uh like completely like fixates on looks which is totally demoralizing but i think the closest thing to like smart reactions to it was to try to make it about race and economics like there was that article that like amya shnivasan had in the london review of books a couple of years which was about like um how our desires are created by you know, the social world or whatever. So that's why like, you know, like Indian men, for example, are less desirable than white men. Um, And like, you know, trans women are less desirable than like cis women. And, you know, like uh, we should question where our desires come from. And like, that's true and all. Um, But what this piece is about is how like, I think like a white man who is undesirable, like a white, like economically successful man who is still not desirable. And that problem of just like ugliness is something that, I mean, he's not even that ugly is the thing. Like, you know, like Welbeck's first book, which is like an absolute like masterpiece, right? It's about like a kind of like normal looking loser who gets sent on a work trip um, with a completely ugly, hideous, toad-like virgin. And that's incredible. It's like the only like book that is just squarely about the problem of the ugly man and this is about this even more diffuse problem of a man that isn't ugly doesn't really have a tiny dick has a good job but for some you know inscrutable reason is unfuckable and what is it is it that he's a feminist what is it it might be that he's just not yeah it is that he's a feminist i think i think that he doesn't embody any sort of like he's not masculine enough he's not it's you know you get psyoped into thinking ask for consent (laughs) um you have to be this like demure guy but nobody wants that and I think that's been sort of the esoteric right-wing twitter project of like no like lift like don't ask just just do it get what you need get what you want and then uh if it's really not working for you then like lay down and rot Eldar Um. yeah I mean, I think like the lifting thing, 
lifting is important but it's like a little bit separate I think it's like about like women are attracted to masculinity of one form or another like like the vast majority of women like not all women was the phrase was not all men right yeah it was yes all women okay yes all women are attracted to traditional normative masculinity but like they really are and like what it means to be masculine is so hard to pin down and like the pickup artists I guess with this sort of like battering ram approach have tried to approximate it um the problem with the like PUA approach is that um, it's really, really like pathetic if you can tell that a man has studied those forums and like those books. Um, and like when it seems like a man is trying too hard, it's just like huge turn off. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, also- a, it's a confidence, it's a confidence thing. Um, and you know, I don't want to be misunderstood to say like just any old man, no matter what he looks like, how tall he is, what his you know economic background is, you can just be confident and will him will his way into a relationship. That's obviously not true. I think like we have a real issue just admitting that some people are ugly or some people are undesirable, and there is no solution because for there to be something that's desirable, there also has to be something that's not desirable. Right. Um, but there is a subset of men for whom confidence is important and. Uh, not coming off as insecure is important. Um, I also think we're afraid of saying that like, yeah, if you are sufficiently good looking, you could be brooding and insecure and uh, you can get away with whatever the fuck you want because you're good looking enough. Yeah, for sure. I mean, no, but it's totally true. I mean, it's for, it's for women as well. I mean, like you and I are both decent looking, but for some reason we were femme cells for years and years. I mean, there is something just wrong with us. Um, and I don't think it was how he looked. I think it was how he acted. It was sort of like an incapacity to engage in the sexual uh, dance uh, that we came over. Did we get over that? We're normal now, I, right? I don't know. You tell me. I think I had to basically move to another country for years. For me, I mean, like, the day is, like, burned into to my mind. Like, it's, it's <laughs> I, I'm serious. I was married and I still felt like I was undesirable. It wasn't until after my divorce did I realize, uh, okay, I can function in some kind of sexual marketplace. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was 18, this would be cancelable now, um, and one of my debate coaches who was like 26 or 27 or something said to me like, you know, you're cute, you should hit on the judges. And like my other like senior coach was also like, you got to flirt with that judge. And I was like, that fat guy with the beard. And he's like, yeah, tell him that his beard is nice. Like one of those metal heads with a really long beard. So I did. I told him I liked his beard and I won the round. But I also won rounds with female judges. So it wasn't my female privilege. You're probably just a good debater. I was a, I was a very good debater. That's why I'm autistic. Um, but um, what am I trying to say here? It's like, oh, is that I can remember being informed when I was 18 years old that I actually was cute and wondering then why is it that no guy wants me to be his girlfriend like for all these years before that and like I sort of was a I guess I got a second shot because the debate I was like in this you know community of people that I was new to so I could be interpolated as cute sort of from the get-go and then after college I or during college I like moved to another country so I sort of had a second bite at the apple um But I think that what this says is that like once you get enmeshed in a certain like as like once you start playing a certain role 
um, in your life, it's very hard to get out of. Like we were playing the role of like the ugly weirdos in high school and we only could get out of that when we moved. I mean, I kind of still see myself that way to this day. I mean, it's, it's, it's changed a little bit. Um, you know, throughout college, I heard, well, I don't like big girls or, uh, your friends more my type, or can you get out of here more interested in your friend so many times that, I mean, I just, I like couldn't really emotionally handle it. And I kept that version of myself and that perception of myself through my marriage. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it wasn't until after my marriage when someone who I saw as like, so, so far out of my league showed even like, you know, made eye contact with me so much Mm -hmm. as took me out to dinner that I was like, maybe I can date. And like, I mean, it like so much time had to pass. I would, you know, I was like well into my twenties before I realized, oh, it's possible that someone could really find me attractive without the caveat of you would be really beautiful if you lost weight, if you wore different makeup, if you wore different clothes. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to get too personal, but like even my ex-husband, um, you know, it was always like, you have the potential to be attractive, but you were not attractive yet. I was like constantly in this, uh, you know, process of like, you know, I'm on my way to some destination never to arrive. Mm-hmm. And it was really only when I moved to San Francisco that I felt like I arrived or at least the standards are, are low enough where I could pretend that I'm desirable, even if I'm not. Yeah. I mean, looks are like a huge trigger for me still. Like, you know, like how upsetting it was for me when I guess I, I guess I shouldn't go into details at all. But like when like my boyfriend said that this like woman like, you know, because I to be fair, was sort of pressing him about it. Like she was probably a 10 and I was like an eight or a nine, but I wasn't a 10. Um, and I, sh- I should. The, the problem is that I don't think I'm an eight or a nine. I think that I'm a three because I was made fun of so relentlessly. I mean, the, here's here's the thing. The, the reason that like criticism hurts or that like incel discourse is triggering or uh, red pill discourse is triggering yeah at least for me is I agree me too yeah you know it's and I you know I I do see myself as a five you know like barely grasping at a five and like I've pulled the wool over you know people's eyes um and so when someone says well I looked at your YouTube channel and I realized that you're actually like an ugly bitch I'm like you're well you're right I am. Oh, you're not. But I, I, to- I totally understand. I mean, like, when, when I was like, you know, like shooting this film and I was told like, oh, maybe you should talk about how you don't look like an actress. It was horrifying to me because the thing is, I agree. I don't look like an actress. I can't even watch like rushes without like deleting half of it before I show it to anyone else. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like horrified by my own appearance. And I guess that's because I read our incels, but I think it's also because it's true. Like people do really harshly judge each other based on their looks. And there's, you know, I guess there are things you can do about it. You could, I don't know, get Botox and stuff like that, get filler, whatever girls sort of ubiquitously do now. Um, Plastic surgery should probably be illegal, Um, but it's true. And the thing that's so horrible about like, you know, people always talk about like looks maxing now on the internet. You know, there's really only so high you can go. Yeah, I mean, there's... and I, and I feel for incels. Like, I have like 
barely questioned them. And I was so horrified, you know, in 28, I guess it was after Elliot Rogers was when it became, no, it was really after like the Toronto stuff, like when it became so fashionable to talk about how insults were this sort of, you know, horrible, just like right wing, completely deluded, like massive, you know, terrorists who, if they just put on a clean t-shirt could get a girlfriend, or if they stopped having such a bad attitude could get a girlfriend. What are they talking about? Have they met a guy? Like, have they, have they met a weird guy? How were these people just so erased in the mainstream discourse? And yet it became an accepted reality that there's no such thing as being too unattractive to get a girlfriend. It, it's crazy. But you, you know, the other side of the coin is that like, there's this huge pop cultural shift to erase the fact that some women are unfuckable, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you, you know, I, I don't think that she is a woman without merit or that she's like hideous or anything, but like this idea that like Lizzo has like a comparable sex appeal to like Beyonce. Right. It's like, are you, I mean, are, who are we kidding? We, we all know. And yet you see this again and again and again. It's like, you know, fuck me up. Yes, queen. Like all of this, you know, the pictures of people who are not conventionally attractive. It's one thing if you're saying it to your friend and it's like, you know, fuck it. Like, what is your friend going to do? Lose 200 pounds? Of course not. Like just support them (laughs) and let them feel good in their own skin. But like this like mass delusion that like, oh, you know, just because uh, Nylon Magazine says so, like uh, women are going to, you know, form a collective and will there will everyone into thinking that people who are morbidly obese are as attractive as like a 22 year old supermodel or something is completely ridiculous and god forbid you bring that up you're fat phobic you're this you're that you're racist it's i mean it's like it's not helpful to the people who are maybe buying this going out into the real world and still being judged anyway like this judgment is never going to be erased or undone right i mean i think there's so much to say about that i mean you're totally right that there's this like myth that Lizzo is largely perceived as sexy which is, is strange it's a, it's it's gaslighting us frankly um but it's also like schizoid because you know with like the you know like growth of Instagram and stuff and like the ubiquity of face app and things like that um like the beauty standards for women have actually become rapidly more unrealistic in recent years. And like with things like micro needling and stuff like that becoming really, really popular. Um, it is true that women are expected to look like supermodels in a way that I don't think they were when we were growing up. Um, Not at all. Right. At the same time, something interesting has happened, which is that I think on college campuses, like there has been some heavy trickle down from the Lizzo stuff. Like I have, you know, like, I see people at, you know, my school that if I, to be frank, if I looked like them when I was an undergrad, like, well, I was bulimic in undergrad, but I would have been more bulimic had I looked like them. And yet they go around wearing crop tops and seeming super confident in their bodies. Like, I think it is more acceptable to be chubby in a BA or a BFA than it was when we were undergrads, which is sort of nice. Like, I do envy them. Like, I hated my body so much because I like, you know, like head tits and stuff and like wasn't, you know, like real thin. And I remember all of my friends in my program, like they all had eating disorders. Like it must have been the same in yours too, right? Totally. I mean, I don't know a person who didn't have an eating disorder. I mean, I remember the first time that I visited you in college and I don't know if you remember, but we were at a bar with like some friend of yours and she just casually asked me what my ED was. 
like was I bulimic or anorexic oh yeah yeah I remember that she was a weird (laughs) (laughs) she was she was weird but like the fact that that was even a plausible thing to occur Right, like even as a joke, like for it to be funny at all, it had to be rooted in some kind of truth. For sure, the fact that all of us at that at that bar were going to throw up later, you know, right. Um, right. So that's good. But I wanted to say one more thing about the the look stuff. What was the other thing that I wanted to say about it? You were talking about how it's like impossible to talk about women being ugly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that there's a sort of like sinister side to it or not sinister, but like a backhanded part to it, which is like by doing alternative casting and stuff like that and having like ugly and fat women in your ads, you are reifying these women are fat and ugly, right? Like when like Balenciaga is like, we're going to put weird ass looking like people as our models, it is kind of saying these people aren't beautiful, they're weirdos. And like, even more so I think with swimwear and things like that like there's that brand salt that sells like swimsuits anyway um and I remember they used to have all these ads up in the subway two summers ago that had like fat models and old models and models with freckles and stuff like that and looking at their fat models I was like this girl's skinnier than me like the fat model is skinnier than me. And the same with Dove and stuff like that, right? Or like Aerie, like they have these like deliberately fat models who are not fat, you know? But you're like, guys are supposed to look at this and think I'm so virtuous if I would fuck this broad. And women are supposed to look at it and say, what are they supposed to say? Like, oh, I look great, which is assuming that they look better than the model who is never actually ugly. I don't know, you know what I'm trying to say? It's, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of weirdness going on here. I mean, you also have this weird sort of like countercultural thing of like bimbos being understood as, first of all, like bimbos looking in this very typical way, like blonde hair, lots of filler, uh, fake tits, but then like getting on TikTok and Instagram and saying like, oh, um, a bimbo is a Marxist and, you know, a bimbo believes in that. I'm like, bitch, please. Like, seriously, it, <laughs> this, the abuse of the, of the word Marxist, I mean, again, that's a whole other episode, but I don't think it's an accident that uh, bimbo sort of eclipsing what, you know, 40 years ago would have been labeled punk. Mm-hmm. In the you know in the face of like these dove ads and this insistence that like again like Lizzo is as sexually viable and you know and as sexually attractive in as conventional a way as say like Beyonce like I this is all like converging at a very weird time in a very strange way. Yeah, um, I think that we should have a whole episode that's about looks, but I think that like anyone interested in reading. A story about an incel like a fair story about an incel to definitely read the story the feminist i love the 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 sort of subtitle for it a straight flush of stable care bonding qualities it's great it's, like, it's kind like, of heartbreaking it's heartbreaking <laughs> it's absolutely heartbreaking and it's so heartbreaking because it starts when the guy is you know 15 years old and it goes to the bitter end it's beautiful Let's figure out how to pronounce Tony's name, then have him on. Tulathamut. I feel like I'm Helen Keller. <laughs> uh, all right. You want to wrap it up? <laughs> uh, yeah, did we decide on a sign-off? 
I, see you at the Bay Bridge Works. Yeah. All right. See you there.